Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you so much for coming to this evening's Connecting Conversation. Uh, my name's Dominic. I'm a trustee of Rowan Arts. Rowan Arts have organized this evening. Uh, and before we get to the main event, I'd like to take a couple of moments of your time to tell you a little bit more about what Rowan Arts do. Rowan Arts are a charity that have been running 10 years. They use the arts and culture as a catalyst to bring communities together. We're based in Holloway, but our projects spread throughout Islington all the way to the furthest boundary borough where we are here at King's Place tonight. Um, the projects are, uh, are incredibly varied. Um, we manage um, music nights, open mic nights, um, walks, talks, workshops, uh, and anything from small tea parties to large-scale week-long festivals. Uh, some of you might have heard of the Holloway Arts Festival. That's a Rowan Arts uh, Festival, managed and run by Rowan Arts. Uh, you will get a flyer about Rowan Arts. It'll tell you more about what we do when you leave this evening. Um, do please have a look at the website. It's, it's a wonderful organization, a wonderful charity. Um, if you do nothing else, then have a look at what they do and come along to another event. Um, so uh, back to the main event this evening. Uh, we're really proud to be able to welcome two women at the top of their professional games. Um, our analyst tonight is Sue Einhorn. Uh, Sue is a, a practicing uh, psychotherapist, has been for 25 years. Before that, she was a youth worker, a community development activist and lecturer. Uh, and she'll be talking to Val McDermott, uh, who's an award-winning crime writer. Uh, having left St. Hilda's Oxford, she became a journalist um, publishing her first novel in 1987. She never looked back and is now a number one bestseller, having sold 10 million copies of her, her novels worldwide. Um, and her most recent last year crime novel, Cross and Burn, was her 27th. Um, she's also the founder of the Harrogate Crime Festival, which we might hear more about later. Um, just to let you know how this evening will run, we're gonna have 45 minutes of talking just between Sue and Val, and then we'll have 45 minutes open discussion with you guys in the audience. Um, there will be a microphone, probably this one, if it's working, going round the auditorium. Do please use the microphone, even if you think you can project loud enough, because tonight is being recorded, so we want to get it all down. A um, Couple of the housekeeping bits. Do please join us for a glass of wine in the bar upstairs afterwards. This one won't be open, I believe, but do come upstairs. Uh, as you leave the auditorium tonight, um, there will be two uh, of Val's novels available for you to buy, and she will be doing a book signing as well. So if you'd like to get a, a book signed by Val tonight, then please, please do. Um, don't forget to pick up a flyer. I'm sure that someone from Rowan Arts can sign the flyer for you too, if you'd like. Uh, and um, thank you again for coming to see this Rowan Arts Connected Conversation. Um, I'd actually like to begin with the Harrogate Crime Festival because I was really delighted to um, be asked to talk. In fact, I think I suggested talking with you because of the Harrogate Crime Festival. I don't know how many of you know Harrogate, 
but it's in, um, I think, a, an area of the UK that is thinking itself, should it go independent or not? Um, but it's in Yorkshire, and it's a very, it's a lovely, rather genteel town. And they have a beautiful old hotel there that looks like a Poirot event, really, or Miss Marple. And that's where the crime writing festival is held. And at the festival, you see people with um, leathers and tattoos, and you see Miss Marple, and you see ordinary people like me. And you see policemen. I mean, I think they're policemen. They look like policemen. <laughs> and I'm sure you see ex-cons as well, or apparently current ones. So, Val, <laughs> having set up this sort of hotbed of entertainment, and it's a, a small festival and really, really good to go to, but why does crime writing appeal to such a wide range of people? I think there's a lot of different reasons why people are, are drawn to reading crime fiction. Mm. Uh, I think one of them, uh, one, of the, one of the key reasons is that the way we live now, um, we live in a much more alienated, fractured society mm. than certainly than I grew up in. When I grew up, I knew everybody in my street. I knew what their dads did. I knew who mm. their mums were. Um, and now, I think most of us don't even know our next door neighbours' names often. Mm. Um, I think we live in a world where we feel anxious. Uh, the surveys tell us that uh, people are more afraid of crime than they are likely to be victims of crime. Mm. Uh, and I think that one of the things that the crime novel offers is a kind of consolation. Terrible things happen, but within the confines of the novel, there are, there are resolutions that are that are people like Tony Hill, people like Inspector Wexford, mm. who even, although it's only a partial resolution, give us some kind of consolation. Mm. It's, a, it's, it's a scary place out there, but it doesn't always have to end badly. So I think that's part of it. Mm. I think there's also, a, there's also a sense in which uh, we like to be scared in a safe way. Yes. It's when we go to the fun <laughs> fair and we go on the roller coaster <laughs> and we scream and scream and scream. And we get off the roller coaster and we go straight back to the queue to do it all over again. Because there's something thrilling about being scared in a safe place mm -hmm. where we know nothing bad is going to happen to us. Mm. And I think there's a, another reason as well, which is perhaps a little more uncomfortable to admit to. And that is the idea of... of um, one of the interesting things about crime fiction is that it's read more by men than by women. A relatively recent survey done by librarians... Uh, indicated that 78% of borrowings of crime fiction were by women. Uh, so, and, and I think part of this is, you, as women, we're supposed to be gentle and nurturing and caring. Mm -hmm. you know, we're, we're, we're brought up not to express feelings of violence and, and rage. Mm -hmm. I bet there's not a single person in this room here who hasn't thought at one time or another, I could kill him, I could murder <laughs> her. You know, we've all yes. had those feelings of extreme... Rage. We don't. We don't act on it because, well, for all sorts of reasons, we don't act on it. But the crime novel, I think, sometimes allows us to sublimate those feelings. Mm. You read. You read an, a, a novel, and, and you can almost imagine that happening to the person who's really annoying you at work, or, or your <laughs> husband, or your lover, or, or your kid, or whatever. Um, and in fact, I, I, I some years ago, I, I had a conversation with a librarian in, in Derbyshire, and he was telling me about one of his customers who used to come in every Monday morning and borrow six crime novels. And she read right across the spectrum from Agatha Christie to Patricia Cornwell to James Elroy to everything in between. She didn't care if it was the sort of bleakest noir or the, the, the coziest village mystery. Mm -hmm. And then one morning she came in and she, she put her six 
novels on the, the, the counter and said, well, that's it, I'm done with crime. I want some nice romance. <laughs> and the librarian was a little bit concerned in case she'd actually read something that was finally too much for her, that had tipped her over the edge, yes. that was too, too horrible to contemplate. Yes. And so he said, you know, is, is, is there a problem with one of these books? Is there a book that we should have off the shelves? Mm -hmm. And she's like, nay, lad, nay, it's, it's my husband, he's died. <laughs> and, and I don't have to think about murdering him anymore. <laughs> for years she'd been reading these books and fantasising about her husband as a victim. And then she, then she wanted a bit of romance in her life. I did, I did ask if there had been a post-mortem, but, but he didn't know. <laughs> but I think, so I think, although, as I say, it's, it's perhaps the, less, the least respectable reason, I think there is a, there's a secret little corner of us that quite enjoys putting the faces of our own hate objects on the victims. Well, absolutely. I can, think, I can see that that's true, but to write about them... That means getting inside their heads, doesn't it? So in that sense, you're also talking about doing something quite subversive, I don't know. Well, I think the process of, of writing a novel uh, mm. means with every character you're creating, you're having to get inside their head. Yes. You're having to step inside somebody else's body, somebody else's skin and see the mm. world through their eyes. Yeah. And there, there's a sense in which it's no more difficult if you're writing about a psychopathic killer than it is if you're writing about another character. You're still making that same journey mm. into an alien space. Mm. Um, and, and sometimes there is that sense of giving yourself permission to be transgressive, to, mm. to imagine what it would be like to have no boundaries or to imagine what it would be like to have a completely different set of values. Mm. It's quite liberating sometimes to, to be able to go to places that, that in the normal run of things you don't get the opportunity to because for all sorts of reasons. We can't operate a civilised society if we all go around behaving like that all the time. <laughs> Actually, Val was named Killer when, when she was a crime writer. That's no, when I was a, when I was a reporter. Oh, a reporter, that's right. I mean, does this link with this idea of being a bit transgressive? I, I have no idea. I was, it, was a, it was a nickname that was given me by uh, my deputy news editor who, for some reason, dubbed me Killer in my early days on the news desk. Yes. I think it was because I was, uh, I think uh, as a, back in, in, in the late 1970s in, in Scottish national newspapers, it was quite tough being a woman. Yeah. And you had to be, I think, tougher than the guys. Mm. Or at least you had to present as being tougher than the guys in order to survive. All right. And, and were you? Well, I was very good at what I did. Right. Um, that was being tougher. Yeah. It, well, yeah. I mean, there was, it was about, as I say, it was about presenting as, as mm. being tougher, which wasn't necessarily the same as how you felt inside. I mean, it was, there was, there was a, uh, my very first day on the Daily Record, um, I was 22 years old. I'd spent oh. two years working on, news, on local newspapers and I arrived at, in Glasgow, my first national newspaper. Uh, it was a Sunday, it was a day shift and the first job I was given was to go and do the death knock on four teenage boys who had died in a fatal car crash in the Lake District. Oh. So it was, go and get pictures of these boys, go and talk to their parents, go and get the story. And it was clear that that was being set, set me as a kind as of a test. test. yes. You know, have you got what it takes? Can mm -hmm. you do this? Um, so I went and did it. Because uh, it, it, was, it was the survival test. If you, can't, if you can't do this, you shouldn't be here. Right, right. But that level of determination started very young, I think. 
Well, uh, yeah, I suppose so. Um, I don't know. I've, uh, let me fill that out a little bit. I, uh, reading what you were like as a child, I sort of felt as though you were an extremely interesting child. What Val said to me in the dressing room was that she, she didn't have any trauma. She had a happy childhood. But there's this very determined child who... Um, Finds a, who who regards your, you seem to regard yourself as an outsider who always wanted to write, is mm. what um, what you've said, and through reading the Shelley School stories, I don't know if any of you know them, I mean, I do, but they they were a sort of group of books at at that sort of period. Through reading those, Val then decided she wanted to go to Oxford, and at sixteen, went for an interview and got accepted at Oxford, and so this very happy child, but an outsider and perhaps a bit of a loner, found herself at this very strange place. What, I mean... I don't know, I'll just rewind that slightly. I don't know I would describe myself as a happy child necessarily, but I had a happy childhood, ah. which is not quite the same thing. Not at all. Um, Do you it, want to say a bit more? Well, I, I think, um, you know, I, 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 there was, my childhood was remarkably untraumatic. Nobody mm. beat me, nobody abused me. Um, you know, I, but I was I was left a lot of the time to my own devices. Mm. Um, so I became a, a child who spent a lot of time inside her own head, mm. um, and uh, inside the heads of the I suppose well inside the pages of the books I read. Because yes. um, when I was six years old, my parents moved house to live opposite the central library, which really became my home from home. Right. And the Shelley School books were very important to me in, in lots of ways. Mm. Uh, it was in the Shelley School, from the Shelley School books, that I first learned the value of series fiction. Because um, although there's lots of you know, children's books that are nominally a series, they're actually not a series because you can read them in any order. It doesn't matter. Mm. You know, the, the famous five never yes. develop. So it's always the same perennial yes. glorious summer. <laughs> and and, and, the, and, and the things that happen to them have no impact on mm. their sensibility at all. Mm. Mm. Um, it's like <laughs> Billy Bunter's postal order never arrives. Yes. Um, <laughs> But with the Shelley School books, things were different. There was mm. actually, there was actually, people carried the burden of their past with them, if you like. If mm. somebody had a tobogganing accident in one book, they still had a limp three years later. <laughs> you know, it, it was yes. that sort of thing. Yes. People, the events had consequences. Yes. And because the books were sequential, you mm. followed people from arriving at the school into adulthood, so you, you saw the way they developed. They were also, um, they were also quite b political. I mean, in 1939, uh, Eleanor M. Brentdyer published a book called The Shelley School in Exile, which was written about, it was written, the stories in that book were set against the Anschluss in 1938. So we, you had Nazi troops on the streets of Salzburg. You had a scene where the schoolgirls were trying to rescue a Jewish watchmaker mm -hmm. from being attacked by a Nazi mob. Now, this was, I mean, I, I don't know anybody else who was writing contemporaneously mm. about Nazi, about the Nazis marching into to Austria mm. as, as a children's book. Um, and so for me, reading that, you know, sort of in the, the, the late 1960s was, this was, yes. was, seemed quite remarkable that you could actually, that you could put politics in a story mm. that, that could, be, could be part of the world of the book. So again, that was something that, that I, I think I, I tucked away as something as, as, as a writer that I learned from those books. And I also learned that, that being a writer was a job that you got paid money for. Because oh. uh, one of the characters in the Shatley School goes on to, to become a writer of girls' school stories in a kind of metafictional way, you know. <laughs> uh, and she gets paid money for it. So as well as, as, well as you know, like the, the, the whole going to Oxford thing, there was all this other stuff that I learned from those books. Mm. But it was all feeding into... Um, what was going on essentially in, 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 
in the head of somebody who was sitting under the table while the grown-ups played cards. Right. Um, you know, and I think I think for a lot of of only children, that is the, the the reality of your life is that you spend a lot of time on your own. And if you manage to find a way to populate your own head with interesting things, then your life becomes much more interesting and much less boring. I was never bored because I always had the voices in my head. <laughs> and, I, and I know that that's probably something for which I should be seeking therapy, but you know, <laughs> the voices in my head seem to be to be essentially benign. <laughs> well, is that true of your books? I mean, those are the voices in your head. They're not yeah. benign, are they? No, they're not benign, but I'm in control. You're in control. Nobody gets dead unless I say so. Right. You know, I don't, it's, never, it's not the case of um, the things in my head don't provoke me to, to behave in a way that's out of control mm. because they are within my command, that the, they are my world, you know. Mm. Um, I, it, yeah, it's, it's, it's a world in which I am God. It, uh, right. And, and uh, mm. you know, I hear the voices and I talk back to them. <laughs> it's quite nice, really. Just before we leave the chalet school, though, were there, was there a particular girl that you identified with or was, was it just generally the community of it that you... I don't, I don't know that I identified with any one individual. Mm. Um, I mean, there are certainly people that I, I didn't have a lot of time for. Mm, right. <laughs> you know, yes. I thought they were wimps or whatever. But uh, uh, no, I don't think there was any one individual. Mm. And, you, and you also sort of introduced the idea of politics. Were you brought up in a political environment? Yeah, I grew up in, in the part of Scotland uh, in Fife, which has a long history of radical politics, um, social right. politics, anyway, gender politics. It's still, still probably about 1973 in Fife. Um, but uh, certainly in terms of it was a, it was a community it was a, it was a part of the country that was very cut off from the rest of the country geographically because mm. to the north you had the Firth of Tay and to the south you had the Firth of Forth and mm. when I was growing up before we got the road bridges it was actually quite an effort to get out of Fife mm. and it was quite inward looking it was quite parochial but at the same time it had this really strong sense of, of radical politics and, mm. and Fife it was a Fife constituency that returned the country's first communist MP so there was a lot, there was strong sort of mining communities and shipbuilding and fishing. So these communities where there was, you know, sort of quite strong socialist radicalism. Mm. Mm. And, I, and, I, and my father was also, uh, he was a great Burns man. He was the, the lead tenor of the Bow Hill People's Burns Club. Uh, <laughs> and uh, this is a, a, an organisation, they, they met on Saturday once a month. And it was a, it was a, a group basically of, of railwomen and miners and, shipyard workers and, and, and some lawyers and dentists and teachers who uh, met to talk about the work of Robert Burns. Uh, and my dad was a great uh, espouser of Burns' libertarianism and, and uh, essentially the, the, the notion of a you know, man's a man for all that, that, uh, that you, know, you called no man your master mm -hmm. and that uh, you, should, you should not be um, held back from ambition, that you should... That you should dare to have ambition and not uh, not let people tell you you couldn't do things. Right. Which is very much part of who you are. Yeah, I mean, yeah. It was, it was, it, you know, thank, thankfully, uh, mm. that was a, a kind of message that sent me into the world with a degree of confidence. So when I, I went to Oxford, um, I had no sense that I didn't deserve to be there. I mean, I, I knew some people at Oxford who came from a similar kind of background to me, a sort of working class background, and they were really quite chippy. They had a chip mm. on their shoulder. They, they mm. really thought everybody was, you know, like, out to get them or make a fool of them or take the piss out of them. 
And I didn't feel like that. I mean, I, I felt very much that I was there because I deserved to be there. And yeah. for me, it was really exciting to be in a place where it seemed to me you were judged purely by the quality of your mind and the quality of your discourse and that nothing else mm. really mattered very much. Mm. Um, and so, so f for me, it was, it, was, um, it was a very liberating experience. Mm. Open lots of doors. It's still opening doors. It's still opening doors. Yeah. You're still... I suppose, in a way, moving on from Oxford, coming back to the books, the thing that we share you and I, in a way, is that we're interested in why. These, the books you do, it's not who did it or who done it, it's why, why they did it. And um, I, I was talking with Val earlier about this whole exploration of the mind and sort of asking, in a way, um, in the books that I've read, the Tony Hill books, really you invite us into the mind of at least four people. There's Tony Hill, who's the forensic psychologist, the profiler who's meant to get into the mind of the perpetrator and therefore help the police to catch him. Mostly they are him. Um, there's Carol Jordan, who is a police officer who works alongside him, whose mind we also enter. And then we enter the perpetrator's mind. And the perpetrator in the books I've read has, their, has his own dialogue all the way through the book, he sort of talks. But the fourth mind that we get into is the victim's mind. And that, I think, is um, something that's really quite special because, in a way, you're constantly making us aware of the suffering of the victim because to get into the perpetrator's mind, you could, by understanding, begin to take their side too much, I would think. But actually, what you do is you force us to attend to some of the most horrible suffering I've ever read, I have to say. Um, but you make us, if you like, go along their terror, their, the journey they are in too. Is that deliberate? Yeah, um, it's been, I think, and I'm, and I'm really glad that you feel that way about the books mm. because it's been at, at the heart of my thinking about the Tony Hill and Carol Jordan novels. Uh, that, that the victims should be at the heart of the books. And one of the things I wanted to deal with with that series of novels mm. was how we write about victimhood, how we write about mm. the people who get dead in the process of the crime novel. Mm. Um, I, when, I, when I wrote The Mermaid Singing, it was partly uh, as a response to a slew of books that came out of America in the, the early 1990s of serial killer novels where where the victims were invariably female, mm -hmm. and, but they had no life outside their death, if you if, if they, mm. I mean. They, they were only there to be murdered. They, had, they, weren't, they weren't people, they were objects. Yeah. Uh, and, and I found this almost a pornography of violence, that we were supposed to get some kind of cheap thrill. I mean, could, we be, could, could the next death gross us out more than the last death? Mm. And, and I found this actually quite, quite disgusting. And I wanted to, to write about these kind of crimes because I wanted to try and explore why and how we do the things that we do to each other as human beings. And I, and, and I know this stuff is out there, horrible though it is, it's out there. And, and often I think, you know, from what I've spoken to professionals who deal with this, what's out there is, is uh, infinitely worse than what ends up in my books. But um, I, I wanted to, to explore, as I say, the, the way that we, that we write about victims. And so in The Mermaid Singing, um, I made my victims young men mm -hmm. because Women, in a way, women grow up 
expecting. We, we, we're told that we are going to be the ones who are victims. We're trained to think of the world as a dangerous place. Don't go down that alley by yourself. Don't go out to that place by yourself. Don't wear a short skirt. Don't do this. Don't get drunk. And I don't think there's a woman in this room who won't at some point have been walking down the street at night and heard footsteps and immediately flashed forward to what's going to happen to me in the next five minutes. I'm going to be attacked. I'm going to be beaten. I'm going to be raped. I'm going to be mutilated. I'm going to be left for dead. Mm. We've all been in that place. We've all been in that, that scary place. And I wanted to... to um, to, if you like, to honour that sense of fear mm -hmm. in, in the books. But I thought if I made the victims male, men are brought up not to think of themselves as victims. They're, mm. they're brought up to think of themselves as, as being the ones who rescue, if you like. They're, they're the strong ones. Yes. They're not the ones who are going to be the victim of an attacker in, in, in the night, even though the reality is they're just as likely to be a victim of violence. Absolutely. Different kind of violence, but that's a, that's a whole other discussion. Um, but, but I wanted to see how it would, how it would affect the process of the investigation if the victims were young men. So, you know, how would it affect the police's approach? Mm. How would it affect the media? Mm. How would it affect everybody who's touched by the crimes, their attitude to them, their response to them? So that was, in a way, that was the starting point with the mermaid singing. Mm. And I didn't intend at that point that, that this was going to be a series of novels. But when I got to the end of it, I thought the characters of Tony Hill and Carol Jordan were, were interesting enough for me to want to continue mm. to, to work with them. And also, the kind of stories I could tell with those characters seemed to me to be interesting stories that were worth telling. Mm -hmm. And so, as I've moved forward through the, through the series, the, this idea of um, giving a voice to the victims, if you like, giving a life to the victims, mm -hmm. so it became very important to me. So mm -hmm. it, I, I like to think that in my books, when somebody dies, we care. Yes. Yes. That it's not just, oh, well, here's the next murder, what happens now? Mm -hmm. that, so I want there to be those moments of shock and I want there to be those moments where almost we recoil. Um, you know, I, I, have, I have said, people have said to me in the past, they find my books disturbing. And my response to that really is, if you're not disturbed by this, you probably need professional help. Because <laughs> they're meant to be disturbing. I'm because, cured. <laughs> because, they are disturbing. You know, we... we 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 need not sometimes you know we need sometimes not to see the crime novel as just an entertainment. It mm. actually should be about provoking thought. It should be about asking us how we got to this place. You know, it should be looking at the idea of do we get the crimes we deserve as a society? Where do these crimes come from? They come from us. Yes. Um, and so, all of those things seem to me to be important things to bring to the table. But at the same time. They have to be at the service of the story because mm. if the story doesn't work, if the characters don't work, if the reader doesn't care enough about what's going on as a novel, as mm. a storytelling exercise, then then anything else that that is of, is of a concern is is, is pointless because they're not going to read it. No, I, when I think then I think it works, but I think it is very very disturbing. Good. <laughs> I'm getting it right then. Yeah. <laughs> but but some of the. Um, some of the things that the victims suffer. I mean, what Val was saying to me earlier was that she doesn't write very much about what the victims experience. But I have to say, in reading the books, the victims experience stay very, very strongly. Yeah. Well, that's my job. My job is to, to set the hair running in your mind. Right. You know, my job is to, to give you enough mm. for your imagination to do the rest. Mm -hmm. And if I've done my job properly, then that's, that's how it goes. 
my own work doesn't disturb me because I'm always, going back to what I was saying, I'm always in control. I know what's, what's going to happen. And I'm also mitigated by technique all the time. You know, is this the right adjective? Is the sentence the right length? Does this have the right rhythm? Should I finish the chapter here? Should I finish the paragraph here? But when you're, you're, you're having the experience as a reader, it's very different. So mm. my own work doesn't disturb me because in that way. But other people's work does. Sometimes, you know, other writers give me nightmares in the way that, you know, I, I, people have said to me that my books have disturbed them. And that's as it should be, again. You know, right. One shouldn't be inured to these kind of things. It's, it's really difficult to understand that you're not disturbed by what you write. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm not. Um, Why? Because I'm in command of the material. I'm, yes. I mean, I, I, there is a purpose to what I'm doing. Which um, is, and and yes. and that and that sort of overrides, I suppose, um, the same kind of visceral response mm. that the reader has. Also, there's, you have to bear in mind that this takes me quite a long time to write a book, compared to the time it takes you to read it. Mm-hmm. If I've done it properly, and you, because if, if you're reading it, you're engrossed in it. You you go through the book in a matter of you know two or three days, yes. or even less if you're on your holidays, yes, because that's what you want on your holidays. And a little bit yes. of harrowing, <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, and so it's very immediate, mm. and it's, it's much more immediate than when I'm actually writing it. Um, but that means you're living alongside these terrible crimes. Yeah, but but I'm making it, it up. It's not real. It. <laughs> you know, when you're when you're dealing with clients, yes. you know their trauma is real. Yes. You know they've been through that. Yes. You've you you understand that, that their experiences has been absolutely um, visceral for them. Yes. But it's not like that for me because I'm just making it up. Right. Because I mean, you know, if if you know, I mean, I think it's inf- life is infinitely harder if you're a, a police officer or a paramedic mm. or, or a fire officer, where you're dealing with these these terrible traumas, terrible tragedies for real. Mm. Um, you know, my my refuge is, as I say, it's it's, it's this knowledge that that I'm in control here. If I decide tomorrow morning this person is not going to die, they're not going to die. Um, <laughs> You know, so so yeah. so in in a sense, I have the, that that as my constant reassurance. I'm making this stuff up. Mm-hmm. But when you're dealing with it, you know those people sitting opposite you. Yes. They have been through that, and yes. that you know, as a human being, you can't not feel that pain, share that pain. Mm-hmm. And if I, as a writer, it's my job to make you, if you like, feel the fictional pain. But also as a reader, you can walk away from my books knowing it's not real. You know, sometimes people yes. should have a disclaimer on the cover. You know, no one was hurt in the making of this book. <laughs> I mean, actually, in the books, you're also very, in a way, you're very good to the police. I mean, although there's some awful police officers, there's also some extremely good ones. Well, um, I think that reflects the reality. But yes. Um, I mean, I, I, I'm not somebody who sees the world as, as a black and white place. Mm. Um, I see, I see shades of grey. I see, I see that people who are fundamentally good people can do bad things, yes. and that people who fundamentally spend their lives doing mostly bad things are also capable of great acts of generosity and, and kindness mm. and trust. Mm. So I, I, uh, I suppose that's reflected in the kind of people I, I write in my books. That you know, there are good, decent people trying to do a proper job who sometimes fail, yeah. uh, and there are people mm. who are just basically arseholes. <laughs> so, We've all come across them, haven't we? We certainly have, but when are you going to release Tony Hill from his torment? 
<laughs> I mean, I don't know if many of you know Tony Hill, and if you don't, please read about. But Tony Hill is the uh, forensic profiler who is impotent. And he is um, put together with the DCI, Carol Jordan, and they have this sort of relationship that never quite... It's a very shy, they're very lonely. I mean, that's another question I want to ask you about the loneliness. But it seems as though what they do is, is continue endlessly to get close and then separate. But Tony Hill seems really, really oppressed by it, tormented by it. Yeah, I think he's a, well, I think I've said on the books, he's a man undone by his own empathy. Yes. Um, that that he, can't, he can't escape his understanding of, of the world, he can't, he can't unknow the things that he knows. Mm. And I think that that makes it fundamentally impossible for him to make the kind of connection with another human being that he loves. Right. I think he, he, he loves Carol Jordan mm. and she loves him. Mm. And it, but the two of them carry so much damage mm. from their past that it's very hard to see how they can get past that. And they keep revisiting it. Yeah. By engage so in a way they're both traumatic, well, they suffer constant post-traumatic stress. Yeah, and neither of them seems to, put them, to, to allow themselves to be in a position where they could deal with that in a constructive way. Well, that's your God. Yeah. Can you give them a help? <laughs> well, see, the, the, see, my problem as a writer is that if I do put Carol and, Jordan, Carol and Tony together, mm. it's probably the end of the series. Ah. Um, it's hard to imagine how, how they could work together if that included, you know, sitting down with their, their toast and marmalade in the morning. Yes. Because um, part, part of the dynamic that drives the series forward is the relationship between them, the dynamic mm. between them. It's where a lot of the dramatic tension comes from. Yes. Um, so if, if I start being kind to them, I'm not being very kind to myself in the long <laughs> run. But, but seriously, as, as, long as, as long as I have interesting things to say, yes. using the characters, I will continue to write the series. Mm -hmm. But when there comes a point where I feel I have reached the end of, of, of where I can reasonably explore, it's entirely possible I will let them skip off into the sunset together. So I have hope. There is hope. <laughs> there is There's hope. always hope. There's always hope. I mean, because they are characters that are outsiders, and a lot of the um, writing in the book does seem to be about loneliness as much as anything mm. else. And is that what you're referring to when you talk about us living in a very different sort of age or a different sort of society? I don't, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't know that I'd... I'd really thought of it in those terms. Right. I think part of the problem with, with, uh, with writing fiction is that if you actually, um, if you're focused on, on what you're, you're doing with the novel, with the story, with the characters, um, then you're not always thinking about the wider theme. Mm -hmm. uh, and quite often um, I'm quite startled when I look back at a book and, and, and understand what's, what mm -hmm. the wider things that I'm exploring are. Um, right. when, the, when The Mermaid Singing came out, I mean, I, I was, what I was really thinking about was I'd written a serial killer novel with quite an interesting premise, and that was really what I was doing. Mm. Um, and about 18 months afterwards, I was, I was at an event, a book event, and a member of the audience uh, said, 
it seems to me that The Mermaid Singing is a book about gender, it's a book about what it means to be a man and what it mm. means to be a woman. Mm. And when he said that, I thought, you know, that's absolutely right, but it wasn't what I was think what I thought I was writing. No. So I wasn't I wasn't thinking in those terms when I was writing it. And I think that often if you if you if you put those things at the front of your head, you end up writing a bad book. Yes. Yeah. Um, I think what you have to do is is you write the book that you want to write. You tell the story that is burning in mm. your head, in your heart. Uh, you create the characters who make that story work and make it come alive. Mm-hmm. And the other stuff finds its way into the book because that is your concern as a human being. Right. The way that you live in the world finds its way into your books. Mm. So I suppose more than anything, why my books end up the way they end up is because that's the way I live in the world. But right. I don't necessarily think of it in a conscious level when I'm writing. Right. So, I mean, that's something that then that I would pick up that you haven't... So, so clearly, <laughs> now you're telling me that clearly what comes through the books is that I'm this, you know, lonely sad bastard. <laughs> if, you go, if you want to take it that way. <laughs> and okay. I think, I think, you know, there may be some truth in that. I think, you know, there is, there's a, um, not the sad bastard, but I'm obviously quite a cheerful person. Um, but I think that uh, growing up in the place that I did in, in the sort of emotional mm. place that I did mm. I think there is there is always in me that kind of residual holding back mm. Mm. and a, and a determination yeah to see things so through yeah mm. Mm. just to change tack almost completely but coming back to politics you are Scottish there are two questions <laughs> that apply I don't to know that. about what they were under the kilt <laughs> oh, that was a question I hadn't thought of, but we are different. Um, okay, the, the first, the most immediate question really is, do you have a view either way? Should we be together or apart? It's a very difficult one, this. Um, I mean, I, I, I've genuinely been uh, in, in real, really struggling to try and figure out where I stand on this. Um, mm. We have a great word in, in Scots, swithering. Smithering. Swithering. Swithering. Which is Swithering, like you're, you're really not sure. One, way, one day you think one way, one day you think another way. We were thinking of having a, a plaque made for our front door that says Swithering Heights. <laughs> but uh, my partner pointed out it would only last until September the 18th and we'd have to take it down. <laughs> um, but um, I, I, I genuinely, I think there are, there are arguments on both sides. Mm. There are arguments for staying together, there are arguments for staying apart. I think there is a real mood for change in Scotland at the moment. There's a real, a real desire for things to be different mm-hmm. and a real fear that if we stay as things are, then they won't be different. Right. Um, that, that, why, why would anything change mm-hmm. um, if, if we don't make it change, if we don't make it happen? And it seems that the, 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 the one group of the population that is most uh, in favour of, of independence is the 20 to 40-year-olds who are the ones who'd actually have to live with it and have mm. to see it through. Um, as I say, it's, it's, it's a very difficult choice, and part of the difficulty comes from the, the apparent inability of politicians to give a straight answer about anything, really. Absolutely. Um, yes. and, and I think as, as, as the, the deadline gets nearer, we will get a lot more hard information mm. and it will make things easier to decide. Mm. Mm. Um, but, you know, it's, it's a tantalising prospect. It's the very chance of being a nation again. Yes, but um, there is also, you know, there is a downside to that as well. It, it's as though we're moving into a much more regional 
way mm. of looking at things anyway, which seems yeah. healthy to me. Well, until recently, I, I, I lived in Northumberland, um, and uh, I, my, I used to sort of say to my friends in Northumberland, you know, if Scotland goes independent, Northumberland should secede <laughs> you know, and, and, and become the Monaco of the United Kingdom. Oh. Know, cheap fags, cheap booze, and a giant casino in Hexham. <laughs> <laughs> They're yet to follow your advice. No. <laughs> okay. Who knows? The other Scottish question is, why are there so many crime writers who are Scottish? Well, it's an interesting question, and I think the answer, again, is primarily in the politics. We right. don't really have uh, a tradition of, of crime fiction in Scotland. We don't see oh. our line of descent as coming through sort of Agatha Christie and, and Dorothy Sayers and all that. No. I mean, our, line of, our line of literary descent as crime writers comes a very different direction. Uh, I would say it comes through James Hogg's Confessions of a Justified Sinner, mm -hmm. through Stevenson's Jekyll and Hyde, through Conan Doyle's Sherlock Holmes, all of which have this, this the, 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 the twofold Scottish thing of darkness, yes. the obsession with the dark side of the psyche, but also the understanding of what, what Hugh McDermott called the Caledonian anti-syzygy, the yoking together of two opposing forces. Okay. So on the one hand, you've got the sort of dark Presbyterian Mm -hmm. oppressiveness but on the other hand you've got the sort of the gale the the the, the singing the dancing the whiskey mm -hmm. um so you've got the, you've got these two things that, that, that pull in opposite directions mm -hmm. and and i think that's 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 part of our roots as, as crime writers but but why crime writing happened when and, and as it did i think has its roots in contemporary politics and in, in the the marriage of contemporary politics and what happened in the crime novel um in 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 the crime novel in, in the 70s and the 80s, it became increasingly the novel of social history. It became mm -hmm. increasingly the novel in which we write about who we are and how we live now. And that's partly because the, the literary novel became very obsessed with theory. Mm -hmm. uh, literary theory became less interested in engaging with readers in a narrative way and much more about sort of metafiction and the death of the author and the death of the text and all of those kind of complicated meta ideas that are actually not really very much mm -hmm. to do with sitting down to read a book on a winter's evening and enjoying yourself. Right. <laughs> so it became very much the case, I think, that if you wanted to, to engage with narratives, mm -hmm. stories that had a proper beginning, middle and end, you, you, you had to turn to genre. At that time, uh, crime writers were starting to understand that you could use the crime novel as a way to, to explore social conditions, social mm. issues, write about politics yes. uh, in a not obvious way. Um, so you, you had the, the sort of new wave of American feminist writers coming through mm. in the late 70s, early 80s. At that time, the Scots were talking about devolution for the first time when we voted in 1978 and we voted yes and Westminster moved the goalposts so we didn't actually get to do it. Huh? Um, but at that time, in the late 70s in Scotland, people were talking about devolution, people were talking about a devolved parliament, people were talking about reclaiming some political powers for ourselves. And at that time, uh, William McIlvanny published a novel called Laidlaw. Mm -hmm. And Laidlaw was really the first modern Scottish crime novel. It's set in Glasgow, it's written in very vernacular speech. When people mm -hmm. talk, it's the kind of way that that I heard people talk in the streets. Mm -hmm. It was the first time I had read a book that seemed to me to be written from and of the streets that, that I understood. Right. Um, and it's a crime novel, and it's, it's a, a novel that's also about, about Scotland and being Scottish. Mm. And for a, a long time, Laidlaw was really sort of like an isolated monument in the landscape. Mm -hmm. But then, as we started talking again about a Scottish devolution, about what it means to be Scottish in the end of the 20th century, 
about independence, about who we are, what kind of country we would be. What are we if it's not, we're not the English and we hate them? Mm-hmm. How would it be for us? What, what were our aspirations? What kind yeah. of framework would we, we want for a, a modern civil society? And all of those questions were being, were being asked. We were, people were talking about these kind of things again. And, and I think that for writers wanting to explore your nation, if you like, or, or wanting to explore what your future might be mm-hmm. as a region, as a country, as whatever, the novel is one of the places where you go to do it. Yes. And the crime novel is a very attractive way to do it because it is, as I said, a novel where you can talk about, about society, you can talk about class. Mm. Um, you know, the crime novel has a particularly um, advantageous shape for this kind of, of, of speculation, if you like. Because in the crime novel, you can embrace lots of different social strata mm. within the novel without straining at it, because you've got, you've got the victim, mm-hmm. you've got the victim's friends and colleagues and family, who may all be very different from, mm. in terms of their background, in terms of their aspirations. You've got the investigators, mm-hmm. you've got the forensic people, mm-hmm. you've got the media who report on it, mm-hmm. you've got the lives who are touched by the investigation. So you can really bring anything into the crime novel that you want to write about. And then in uh, 87, uh, Ian Rankin and I both published our first crime novels. Um, and they were both in their, in their different ways uh, writing about Scotland. They were set in Scotland. My mind was partly set in Scotland. Ian's was entirely set in, in, in Scotland. And it's one of these things that, you know, if, if somebody pushes the door open a wee bit, people suddenly see a possibility. Mm-hmm. So in, in the wake of that, it became... Uh, this the, the idea of writing crime fiction that was a good read, that engaged with readers, that sold books, but that also dealt with where we are mm. now and who we are now mm. became possible. And so what had just been like, you know, a couple of people standing there going like, could you write a book then? Um, <laughs> became yeah. a flood. Uh, and yes. it, you know, because, because it was attractive, because it was seen as possible, mm, mm. It, it, it then um, you know, has, be, has become this, this major uh, force, so much so that it even has its own crime writing festival now, Bloody Scotland. Yes, well, I noticed that. <laughs> Bloody Scotland, indeed. Yes. Um, I think we are about to open up to everybody. I mean, I think it's absolutely fascinating. And the other thing, of course, that you write about a lot while they're raising lights is um, the landscape. Yeah. That's another thing that's very, very engaging, I think. Well, I think, uh, for me as a writer, the landscape's quite important because I, I like to be able to uh, see the pictures in my head mm. of where I'm writing. So I like that sense of... of it's, it's almost like having a film running in my head yes. while I'm, that, I'm, that I'm describing. Um, and sometimes place is, is, um, is enough to set a whole idea running in your head. Yeah. The place itself becomes the, the inspiration for, for mm. the book. Um, I suppose I wrote a book called Place of Execution uh, in 1999. And that was a book that was like 20 years in the making because when I first moved to Derbyshire in 79, I fell in love with the White Peak, the Peak District. Mm. And it, I, it, I, just, I loved being out in, in, in the hills there. I loved walking there. And there was something about it that really spoke to me in a very mm. resonant way. And I thought, this is a landscape that, that is full of secrets and mysteries and... and, and and, and strangenesses, and I want to write about this, and I want to write about it in a very felt way. Yeah. And it took me a long, long time to figure out how I could do that. Um, and gradually, I, I, I understood that uh, whatever I wrote about that landscape had to be organic. It had to mm-hmm. be, it had to have grown out of it. It almost had to be 
it, it could only happen here. Mm, mm. Um, and it took me a long time to find the story. But anyway, that that was something where, where I knew one day I was going to write about this. And, mm. and But I think there's another sense in which uh, a sense of place is, is, is important to the crime writer. And it's it's a kind of trick that we play on, on the reader. Because really and truly, we all know that crimes are not solved the way that people like me write about them. You know, it's not one lonely, grumpy DI with his sidekick buying in pints of real ale that solves a murder. Uh, and the actual way that, that, that crime is, is solved and, and the way that, that a murder investigation is conducted is a very different thing. Mm. And in fact, it's monumentally dull for most of the time. It's, it's, mm. it's a lot of people doing, you know, a very sort of serious and, and focused job, but it's not very exciting to write about. So in order for, uh, for you to come on this journey with me, it's important that I can make you suspend your disbelief for long enough to, to accompany me mm -hmm. through the, the story. And if I write about the setting of this book in such a way that you believe me, then it becomes a lot easier for you to follow me through all the other improbabilities. So if I'm writing, <laughs> if I'm writing yes. about a city, mm -hmm. I, for example, I have to write about it at, at sort of three levels. Um, so I have to write about the real city. So there have to be things that you recognise uh, about mm. it, you know, places that you know a, 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 a junction between two streets or, mm. or a particular uh, row of shops or a, a particular building, uh, a, a church perhaps, or a, 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 an office block or something like that, that if you know the city, you'll immediately go, oh, yeah, I mm. recognise that. I know mm. exactly where she is. I know that street that she's walking down. Right. Um, and then you also have to know your city well enough to uh, install within that landscape uh, fictitious places that, are, that work in the context of the city. So, for example, if you were writing about a nightclub where drug dealing was taking place, you'd be very ill-advised to do that in a real nightclub. Because, yes. you know, <laughs> men with baseball bats would come and knock on your door. Um, but you have to know your city well enough to put your fictitious nightclub somewhere that it's possible for a nightclub to be. Yes. So you wouldn't put it in a leafy suburb, you know. So you, you put it in the right place under the right sort of railway arches. So you've got that level. You've got the real city. You've got the fictitious city within the real city. And then beyond that, you've got to have the universal city. Mm. So that for someone who's never been to Manchester, they can read your description of Manchester and have a sense of what that relates to in their city. Mm. And I sometimes wonder about this because, you know, I mean, my books are translated in something like 40 languages, you know. And I do wonder sometimes what people in Sao Paulo or Tokyo <laughs> are making of, you know, sort of my detailed description of the streets of Manchester or, you know, sort of mm. my, my description of a Northumbrian moorland landscape. <laughs> but, as I say, you have to try and make that, that, that give it that universality. Mm. Mm. And so if, if, if your reader believes you with what you're telling them about about the streets and the landscape, mm -hmm. then they're going to go like, oh, she's telling me the truth. Everything's <laughs> fine. I can trust her. But because the downside of that is that sometimes things change. Uh, and and uh, I'm sure this is the case with, with all sorts of, of novels. But I think sometimes I think crime readers are particularly prone to, to picking up on, on little things that they see as mistakes or things that we sometimes oh. get wrong. Um, and I got this wonderful letter once. Um, I, I, I just like this series of novels with a Manchester-based private eye. And I had I'd, I'd written this novel, and I got this letter from a reader that said, um, I've just finished reading whatever book it was, um, and I noticed that uh, you have Kate Brannigan turning right at the traffic lights on Oxford Road. <laughs> <laughs> at the time the book was published, 
it was still possible to turn right at these traffic lights. <laughs> However, the road system has changed and you may want to alter this for the paperback. <laughs> <laughs> really, <did> <laughs> really, no. Oh, no, 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 no. Really and truly, some people need to get out more. <laughs> or maybe get out less so they're noticing when the traffic lights change. Well, look. But, but, but again, the, the, trouble, the trouble is sometimes with... with um, Sorry, I'll give you a chance in a moment. But um, the things that, you know, people, people ask me sometimes about the research that, you, yeah. that I do for books, and, and, and actually I do often do a lot less than people think. But the, 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 where, where you always fall down is the things that you think you know. You know, right. I wrote a book a few years ago called The Grave Tattoo, which uh, is set against, uh, the background to it is that William Wordsworth and Fletcher Christian went to school together and there was a strong and persistent rumour in the Lake District that Fletcher Christian came back to the lakes. He didn't die on Pitcairn. So that was the background of this novel. So I did all this historical research. You know, I did all these reading about the mutiny on the bounty and biographies of Wordsworth and, and, and looked at maps of the Lake District as it was in sort of back in the 1820s and did all this endless stuff and, 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 and then I wrote the book. And then I got deluged <laughs> with emails and postcards and people at events like this. Because when I was a journalist, if we wanted to look up births and marriages and deaths, we went to St. Catherine's house. I knew that. I'd been there. So I was, I was writing about what I knew. And what, of course, I didn't realize was that a couple of years before I published the book, that St. Catherine's house had been closed and all that stuff had been moved to the Family Records Centre in Islington. <laughs> well, I didn't know that, but everybody else knew it, apparently. <laughs> so I learned there the valuable lesson that the things you get wrong are the things you think you know. Things you right. don't need to check because you know them. <laughs> so you're like, right, yeah. That's Thank a you. good Duh. lesson. <laughs> a good Sorry. lesson indeed. Yeah. But I think this is the lights up, and it's now over to you to ask some questions, and there's a burning one down here, yes. I think. If you could just wait till the roving mic arrives so that everything ends up on the podcast tape. Can you hear me? Yeah. I love your books, Val, and I've read a lot of them, um, and I don't think that I have this insecurity about crime. Um, for me, it's that I feel so impotent and unable to change the world and, and um, ameliorate the evils I see. And so I so relate to people like Tracy Chen or any kind of maverick who is sacked or slapped down for going, you know, or Sam who is slapped down for going his own way and who um, manages to find the clue that nails the killer. So for me, it's about that. That's my identification. Have you any comments, either of you? I think that's really interesting mm. um, because I think I think I think I think you may have have a really good point there. I think many of us would like to think of ourselves as be, uh, we like to be possible heroes, don't we? And so I suppose one of the things that we do when when we go to when we go to books, when we go to movies, when we go to the theatre, is we kind of we do identify with the people who are achieving the things that we wish we could do. Um, and, I'm, I'm, and I'm glad that you find that satisfaction from some of my characters. Mm. So I, I take that as a great compliment. Thank you. <laughs> the rebellious one. Down here. <laughs> um, 
thank you. I'm going to have to leave the stage now because I mean, I'm Scottish and we don't take compliments well. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, I've I've actually got quite um quite eclectic tastes in, in whose work I enjoy. I, I would really struggle to, to pick one favourite author, um, but cause, because because what I'm always looking for is 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 writers who tell stories that, that that matter and tell them well and and tell them through the the the, the kind of characters that you you care about. Um, and so yes, Hilary Mantel. Yes, Donna Tartt's Secret History, but also Margaret Atwood, mm. also Ali Smith, whose books make me get to the end and make me go back to the beginning again because I want to read it again in the light of what I know now. Um, there are crime writers whose work I admire very much. I, I still like Sarah Paretsky a lot. Um, I go back regularly and reread Reginald Hill's books because I think that, that, that there's a real richness there that, that, uh, that I, I, I miss. I'm, I, I still, I still, I still mourn his his death because I miss the books we'll never have, mm-hmm. um, and and there's there's also like you know a lot of younger writers coming through now whose work I think is really interesting. I I, I love, I mean, amongst my Scottish uh, fellow writers, I love Denise Miner's work. Mm-hmm. I admire Louise Welsh, who I think is a really a really interesting way of of approaching things and thinking mm-hmm. about things, um, but I think. Where crime fiction is concerned at the moment, I think we're, we're really in a, in a purple patch. Um, I don't know if any of you heard Tony Parsons' ridiculous comments the other night about he was bringing heart to the crime novel, no. to the thriller, where there was no heart before. You know, like, yeah. Well, I, I think actually that there's, there's one or two of us who have discovered that how it's possible to put heart in a, a thriller or a crime novel. Um, but, I mean, so, so there, are, there are, I said, writers who... There's an Australian writer called Michael Robotham. I don't know if you know his work, and who I think is a terrific writer and, 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 and again approaches things in a really interesting way, uh, exploring human motivation and, and the way that we, we, we behave. He also has a, a central character who is a, a psychologist. Um, and although his, he's Australian, his books are set in the UK. There's, there's an embarrassment of riches out there. Um, and one of the things that, that I, I do at the Harrogate Crime Writing mm. Festival, it's, it's, it's a yes. little job I have snaffled for myself, um, is that I, I chair the, the panel for New Blood, the new, the new writers. And that, to me, is, is, is just the best job in crime fiction because I get sent every year about 70 first novels. Um, now, I don't read all of them because that would be silly. Um, <laughs> but, I, I mean, I do winnow through that pile... And in the course of that, every now and again, pretty much every year, there's always one or two writers that really excite me. They grab me by the throat. I think this is somebody who's really, who's really special, who's got something to say, who's going to be exciting. It's, it's not just the voice of this book, it's the potential of what's to come. So, um, for example, recently we had uh, Malcolm Mackay, who is a young man from the Isle of Lewis, um, who has almost never been off the Isle of Lewis and has created this, this series of extraordinary noir novels set in Glasgow, um, seen through the, the eyes of a hitman. Uh, and his, his style is, is terrifically taut and, and, and economical. 
uh, and, and you just, I read this, the first one of his books and I just thought, this is somebody who is going to excite me for years to come. So I, I, for me, this is, there's never been a more exciting time to be reading and writing crime fiction. Mm. Yeah, and, and the, the genre keeps reinventing itself. You know, every time you think it's going to run out of steam, it's going to run out of steam, somebody does something different and you just go like, wow. <laughs> You know, you've got a writer like Megan Abbott in America doing really interesting things with, you know, the lives of, of, of I suppose, ordinary lives, you'd have to say, although no life is ever ordinary. Mm. Um, and, but I, I just love the way that, that we can use the crime novel to write about so many different elements of being human. Mm. There's a question down here, I think. Thank you. Shall I go? Shall I go? Shall I do it? You, and then um, you. Can I, I, I ask you, 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 you've talked about us um, going with you and suspending our disbelief, and then you were talking earlier about you being God and you deciding who dies and therefore you don't engage with it. But for me as a reader, the hard thing is not that what you're telling me in the story is true. I can, I can do that, but that I do know these things happen, and that's the catch for me. And I just wonder how you deal with that, because although you're writing a fictitious story about dreadful things, they do happen. They do. Um, and how you square that in your thinking. Well, for, for me, um, one of the things that's, that's, also, that's kind of a cornerstone of what I do is, is that um, I, don't, uh, I don't base my, my books, I don't base the things that I write in real cases. Um, I'd spent long enough as a journalist um, dealing with the aftermath of, of murder and, and um, sometimes the very long tail that murder has in its wake to understand that uh, even though you think you know the ins and outs of a real case, there's often things that you don't know. And the last thing I, I want to do is to add to the existing grief of people who've already gone through enough. Mm. So I, I, I very carefully don't think about real cases when I'm writing my my work um, so it, it is entirely with a couple of very small exceptions entirely whole cloth from the inside of my head as well that for me is how I how I make that separation mm. but sometimes you, you can't avoid touching on on um, reality because uh, for example uh, in a place of execution uh, the the bulk of the book is set in the early 1960s, and at the time that this fictitious crime is happening, basically a, a teenage girl goes missing in Derbyshire. At the same time, the first victims of Ian Brady and Myra Hindley were going missing in Manchester. Mm. It would have been bizarre not to reference those cases, but I was, I, was, I was very conscious when I was writing that of not being exploitative, of sticking absolutely to the facts of what we knew at that time and not extrapolating from that. But, it, but it's also true that you are using crimes that you know have happened. Is that, I mean, you no, mean, not the specific no. ones, but the, I don't know if your question meant that these things happen, that there is a sort of level, not the specific crime, but that there is a level of violence that goes on out in the world. Yeah, yes. Um, so in that sense, they happen. Um, I don't know if that's, that, that was... Yeah. Yes. But but that that's that's the job of the of the writer of fiction is to engage with the world, mm. to engage with what happens. Mm. Um, you know, I mean, it's it is it is the function of of 
of the writer of fiction mm. to, to, to do that, to, 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 try and, mm. to try and understand, to try and come to some understanding of, of God help me, the human condition. Um, <laughs> yeah. and, and so in order to try and understand anything about how, how we live, you have to treat with the kind of things that happen in the real world. Mm. Um, you know, other writers approach different, different elements of, of the world in, in their work. You know, some writers write romantic fiction um, and, you know, love happens, um, but not necessarily the way it happens in books. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I think yeah, there's, there's, there's a line to be drawn about writing about these things in a way that, that, is, is, that, makes, it, that makes it real, but that isn't voyeuristic. And I think that's that's something that uh, that every every writer has to to draw that line for themselves, um, you know. And, and I I know when I'm writing, that's one of the things that I'm taking into consideration very carefully. Have I have I done enough? Have I done too much? Have I gone too far? Is this exploitative? Um, and and that for me is something that's that's very much at the heart of what I'm I'm trying to get right, mm. trying to to convey what I want to convey without without it becoming something that is ultimately voyeuristic and exploitative and it's a hard thing to do and you know in a way I don't always know if I've got it right I rely on on other people to tell me that's why I have an editor that's why I have an agent mm -hmm. these I hope are the people who would grab me by the throat and say you've gone too far this is this is this is horrible mm -hmm. a next question there's one over here yeah I think um, you've already been talking about something that's very directly related to my question because in your books and in lots of crime writing there's a who done it and a why done it but there's another question which is how did somebody actually cross the boundary mm. from mm. being unable to do it into being able to do it and I wondered if you've got any thoughts about that or maybe maybe the answer is it's something you just don't want to talk about or write about well, I think it's 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 something that is very very much present in my own mind when I'm thinking about these things because what I'm what I'm looking at when I'm writing about these kind of killers is is how they got to the place where they are doing this thing, and there usually is something that is that is a provocative element, a provocative act in their in their history, in their immediate history, and in their past history. So you've got you've got two kind of of, of um, sets of events, if you like, you've got the um, the things that happened to them earlier in their life to put them into a place where this is even possible, and then you've got generally got something specific that sets them over the edge into somebody who's just thought about these things, somebody for whom these things are possible, into somebody who's doing them. And so when I'm when I'm writing, I do try to where where it's where it's feasible and where it's it's credible try and put that place into the books mm -hmm. um, because I think it is, it is an important thing, if we're going to understand why these things happen, we have to understand the history the hinterland, mm -hmm. and so for me it's, 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 um, it's something that's, that's very present when I am doing this kind of thing, is, is to create that hinterland On a slightly lighter note um, I've just been reading one of your novels in which there's a serial killer who kills off all the crime writers in a very bloody <laughs> manner. Yes. I'm just wondering if there's anything that would make you cross over that. 
No, I'm actually a pussycat, really. Um, <laughs> I'm very squeamish. I don't like I don't like the sight of blood. So, if I was going to kill anybody, it would have to be with some uh, extremely unbloody way, sort of probably poison or something like that. But, um, you know, I, I do I do sort of tease my family that I know 104 undetectable ways to kill them, so they should be nice to me. <laughs> um, but uh, I I think I I understand too much about the aftermath of sudden violent death to mm. to be tripped over. Uh, to break the taboos. There's another question over here. Oh. Hi. Um, I wanted to ask... <clears throat> I just wanted to ask about um, series. You talked about um, book series when you were talking about the chalet school earlier. Um, how do you decide whether you're going to write a one-off or a Tony Hill or a Kate Brannigan? Does Tony Hill come to you in your dreams and say, it's time for another one? Well, um, my, my, my big problem in terms of writing series is that I, I get bored very easily. Um, I can't write two books back to back with the same central characters, which I discovered to my cost after I'd given up the day job. Uh, I sat down to write the second Kate Brannigan just after I'd written the first one. And I was about halfway through it and I thought, God, this woman's annoying. <laughs> And, and it became clear to me that, that, that I was going to have to, to write a, 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 a varied sort of uh, set of books, really. Um, and ideas are never in short supply. Ideas are always... Ideas are everywhere. Ideas are cheap and easy. It's develop, have the time to develop them into something that actually works as a story. That's the thing that takes time. And, and being interested enough. Um, what I'm seem to be doing at the moment is, is kind of writing a Tony Hill and then writing a standalone in between. Um, so when I come to the end of, of a Tony and Carol book, I have to think about what, what the next book is and what's ready to roll. So um, when, when ideas come, um, it becomes fairly quickly evident whether they are something that fits in with Tony and Carol or whether it's something that requires a wholly different structure to tell and a wholly different set of characters to tell. Um, Kate Brannigan and Lindsay Gordon appear to have stopped speaking to me um, <laughs> so I'm not sure if, if I will revisit them again but um, for now that's, that seems to be the way it's going uh, and so it's just when, when, when I've finished I, I have no overarching um, long term story arc for Tony and Carol some people you know, sit down to write a series and they go like I'm going to write 10 books um, Sue Grafton started the A's for Alibi mm -hmm. God, she must be really looking forward to X's for xylophone. <laughs> um, but uh, I, I don't have any sense of, of a long-term strategy for those two. So it's, it's book to book. When I finish one book, it's like, okay, I've got to think about where they're going next. Um, and usually by the end, time I get to the end of, of one book with them, I've got a sense of where the next one's going to be taking them. And I might have a story to give them at that point, or I might not. It's just going to be rolling about in the back of my head. But then it's time for the next standalone that's ready to roll. And I always have to hope that there is one that's ready to roll, because there's a lot, there's always a lot of half-formed ideas in the back of my head. Do you only ever write one book at once, one book at a time? Yeah, I only write one book. At, I only write one novel at a time. And um, the last. I've currently been been writing uh, a non-fiction book about forensics in tandem with, uh, with this year's book, but that's oh. that's kind of, that's that's just so different. It's such a different thought process. From, I couldn't write two novels at once. I did once 
try to, to write two novels at the same time. So I, was try, I thought I could I thought I could do one in the morning and one in the afternoon, <laughs> and that lasted about a week. Yes. <laughs> Just not couldn't do it. Couldn't do it. Well, was your children's story a standalone? Moment. Well, my, my, my children's book was kind of um, an accident, really. It was, it was just something I'd made up for my boy when he was little. Oh. Um, and my publisher kept going on about, darling, you must have a children's book in you. And I'm like, <laughs> no, no, I don't. It's, it's a specialist skill I don't have. And eventually I just sent her this, this to shut her up, really. Um, and she said, oh, darling, we love it. <laughs> um, and so it took us a while to find the right illustrator. Uh, so it ended up, uh, uh, there will probably be a sequel to it. Oh, um, you know, so pirate granny in the revenge of the skeletons <laughs> um, but I tell you Reason. something the hardest gigs I have ever done is rooms full of small children jeez <laughs> I mean you know I mean frankly I blame the parents these children have no discipline at all <laughs> especially when you've got all the nice middle class ones you know the Tarquins and the Jessicas right right and, but you can inflict quite a lot of pain with a chocolate coin thrown with the right Angle and the right speed. <laughs> I think we know who's going to be murdered next. Um, question. It's working. Yes. Yeah. Um, when I was reading about the Jacko Vance character in some of the Tony Hill books, oh, um, I was wondering sort of who you might have based him on. And then I heard when the Jimmy Savile scandal broke that he was the inspiration for that character. Is that true? And um, can you just explain how that happened? Well, it's, I wouldn't say he was so much the inspiration for the character as that he informed the character. The inspiration for the book came from quite a different direction. Um, this is the book The Wire and the Blood, uh, mm. which features a, a serial killer who is a, a television celebrity, uh, a former sportsman. The, the original idea for the book came in 1994 when I was in America researching a non-fiction book about women private eyes. At the time, the O.J. Simpson trial was going on. And everyone was obsessed with it. Every time you turned the television on, it was the OJ trial. There was even a college in, in New York that was actually offering a course called OJ 101 so that people could better appreciate what they were seeing unfolding on their TV screens in terms of the, the legalities of it. And one of the people I interviewed on that trip was uh, a private eye who had been involved in the first allegations of paedophilia against Michael Jackson. And she said to me then that uh, there's absolutely no doubt about what he had done, but he had basically off the witnesses. And I thought that was very interesting. It seemed to me that, um, that celebrity uh, was a kind of shield, that if you were famous enough, uh, then you could get away with anything and people just wouldn't believe it. Or if they did believe it, they would do nothing about it. And I, I, I came back to the UK and I started thinking about, uh, about this book. Uh, and I remembered, uh, I'd, I'd met Savile, I'd interviewed him in, in 76 or 77, uh, and I, I thought he was a deeply unpleasant man. Mm -hmm. he, he, I got a really bad vibe off him. Uh, and he, he, as soon as he were out, as soon as it was just me and him away from the public, he was really unpleasant. He was nasty. Uh, if I asked a question he didn't want to answer, he'd just go like, people don't want to know that. Here's what people want to know. It was very hostile. And for no reason at all. I mean, I was a baby journalist on a weekly newspaper, mm -hmm. for God's sake. You know, it was not exactly, you know, a scary challenge. Um, and then when I was later working in Manchester, um, I remember... People, every now and again, you'd, you'd, you'd get somebody uh, phoning up or coming in and, and claiming to have been molested uh, as a child. Um, and Savile was one of the people whose names came up again and again. But there was never sufficient evidence mm. to put a story together. Mostly these people had already been to the police and they'd come to us because the police had told them to go away and stop being a nuisance. Mm. Mm. Um, 
however sympathetic we felt towards them, this wasn't the kind of story you could run without solid evidence. Mm -hmm. And there was, there was never sufficient evidence to, to run the story. And there was, there were names that came up again and again: Savile um, and and Cyril Smith. And uh, there was a senior Tory MP whose name came up again and again, but I'm not prepared to say who that was because he's still alive. Mm. Um, and you know, there's, 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 you know if, if you don't have solid evidence, you're just you know inviting a libel suit. It's, mm. uh, so we could never do anything with this, and it was it was immensely frustrating mm. not mm. to be able to do this. So when I was I was thinking about Wine and the Blood, and I and I thought about Savile, and I thought that uh, you know, since we couldn't get uh, couldn't nail him in in the media, we could perhaps I could perhaps go some way to towards nailing him in in, in fiction. Mm. And so I created this character. Um, who has a TV show called Vance's Visits, as opposed to Savile's Travels. Um, but who did many of the things that, that, that Savile did. He visited uh, people in hospital. He, mm -hmm. he did events for charity and all that sort of thing. But I made him handsome and charming. You did. And nobody, nobody ever said to me, is that based on Jimmy Savile? There was, there was another television presenter whose name came up again and again and again. People say, you've based him on so-and-so, haven't you? And I'm mm. like, no. It's not. But, yes. And it was entirely the superficial detail. It was handsome and charming, uh, ignoring all the other the other stuff. So that was that was kind of what what it was, what the root of it. Um, and, it and it remains, you know, a frustration to me that uh, that these people got away with so much for so long, because um, the victims were people who were often so damaged by what had happened to them that it was very difficult to to collate credible testimony. Mm -hmm. I think we would agree with that. A lot of people in this room would agree with that. Is there another question? Oh, one down here. Thank you. Um, you mentioned Wire on the Blood and Wire on the Blood a second ago, and of course that was as a TV series, isn't it? I just wondered how you you feel about seeing your your characters. In, in in a TV setting and the difference between the novels and the seeing seeing a TV series. Well, I, I was very lucky because um, I, I worked very closely with with Coastal Productions. We, we made the Wire and the Blood. Um, un, unusually, they they seemed quite keen to have some input from the actual creator of the characters. <laughs> Normally, when television companies option your your work, the next thing they would like to happen is that you would fall under a bus, so they never have to deal with you again. Um, I, I was very happy uh, to have Robson Green play in Tony Hill because he physically mm. is very like the Tony Hill in my mm. head. Mm. Um, and I think he's a good actor. And we sat down at the very beginning of the process and we talked about what were the key elements in the books. Um, and and um, basically I then said to them, you've got to go away now and make the best television you can make that feels of a piece with the books. And that's what they did. So I, I was very well served. I think, I mean, inevitably... Um, television, as as they were doing television then, um, is is much more superficial. You know, you take a, a, a 400 page book and you translate that into 90 minutes of television, it, you're going to mm -hmm. lose a lot along the way. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, you know, now that uh, the, the the long form has become popular in the wake of, of things like The Killing and and, and Borgen and, and mm -hmm. The Bridge, uh, maybe in future when we get adaptations, they will have more depth to them than, than we have had in the past. But I think they did something, they made good television. And the key thing, I think, is that if you watch the TV and then come to the books, you don't feel a sense of dislocation. Mm. They feel of a piece, mm. and, and, and vice versa. 
I mean, sometimes when, when things get adapted, you end up with sort of I mean, very bizarre outcomes. I think if you saw a later episode of D.L. and Pasco, you would be going, well, isn't that funny? They've got the same names as those guys in Reg Hill's books. <laughs> um, yeah. But I, I think I was a lot better served than that. But they stopped quite suddenly, didn't they? Yeah, well, ITV cancelled the series because they got a new head of drama. And, you know, oh. it's, it's the politics of television, it's a bit like dogs and lampposts, you know. <laughs> Tony Hill has such a dreadful childhood and his mother is such a monster. Yes. He could have easily turned out to be a serial yes. killer. Why didn't he? Well, I think um, there is, there is uh, that, uh, that, that moment is explored in, in one of the novels. Um, I mean, he's, he's, he's very aware that, uh, that he could have gone, that he could have ended up as, as the killer and not the hunter. Um, and there was a moment for him where uh, things turned, and as is usually the case with these things, it, it was about love. Mm. Where somebody, uh, a crucial point in his life, offered him love. And he was able to accept that. Well, it, there's something too, isn't there, about being able to connect to other people mm. that comes back to this isolation and loneliness that um, I sort of seem to see in the books. I don't know. I think maybe it's it's the sense of being being the observer. Is it being the observer? Because if you I mean, that's the thing about being a writer is you do have to you do have to have that sense of, of detachment. Sometimes you have to observe. Mm. I mean, that is, it's one of the less appealing things about about the process of of writing. I mean, you you, you know your your best friend is telling you something truly awful. You know, that mm. some you know their partner has cancer or you know. They've lost their job, or, or you know, some, something's, something awful has happened. Their kids, mm. the kids on drugs, or whatever. And the human being in you is genuinely supportive. You genuinely, mm. you mean it when you take them in your arms and you say, "I love you." There's anything mm. I can mm. do, mm. I'll do it. But the writer in you is also going, "It's fantastic. I can use that." Can <laughs> <laughs> you know, just say that again? I didn't quite catch it. <laughs> so, so we do have that kind of duality. Yes. Um, Yes, it's not very nice. Yes, you gave me quite a look then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we, we, eat, we eat our own lives and then we eat the lives of everybody around us. Okay, there's another question emerging from this. Yes, yeah, sorry, can I take you back to basics, something you must have been asked a lot of times before. It sounds to me as though you always wanted to be a writer. But the crime reporting, was that something that was postponing the inevitable? Was it something you felt you had to do before you could be a writer? Was it something that influenced what you eventually started writing? No, I, I, I wanted to be a writer as soon as I realised that that was actually a job that you got paid money for, that it was a career as opposed mm. to you know, nice people writing books for the library. Um, and I was never actually a crime, crime reporter specifically. I was always a general reporter. So I did, I did some crime stuff alongside lots of other things. But journalism was, was only ever what I did until I could write fiction. Um, I mean, and, and it was kind of accident. I mean, it wasn't accidental, but it was... I mean, I became a journalist not because I thought it was actually got anything to do with writing, but because it was the only job I could conceive of doing. You know, I went to this, this careers fair where you have to meet all these employers and mm -hmm. they talk to you about what kind of job you could do, you know. And I've always had difficulties with authority. I've never been good at taking orders. I've never been good at hierarchies. So I knew that right away ruled out an awful lot of stuff. 
Um, you know, my, my, one of my tutors kept banging on about I should join the Foreign Office. I'm like, how many wars do you think we'd be in now if I was the diplomatic? You know? um, so so I, I, as I, say, I knew I wasn't going to do something that, that was sort of any, in any way hierarchical. And I knew I couldn't do something that was nine to five because, as I said earlier, I get bored very easily. I wanted something that would be different day to day. And it seemed to me the only thing that, that, that fit the bill was, was journalism. Um, I did have a, a, a did have a brief notion that this was something to do with, with writing, but that was I was soon disabused of that. Um, Is it very so, different sort of writing? Then? <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. Um, and I was a tabloid journalist. You know, um, I I, uh, I I went into tabloid journalism out of a sense of misplaced idealism. I suppose that um, that working people deserve newspapers that were informative as well as entertaining. Mm. Uh, and if people like me turned our back on it, then it wasn't going to get any better. I was right about that, anyway. <laughs> Somebody said to me the other day, you know, well, where do you think you'd be now if you'd stayed in newspapers? Well, probably the old Bailey. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, words obviously are your life, but it might be interesting for people here to know that when we were talking earlier about a form of therapy, actually the form of therapy you like is one without words. Yes, um, I, I, I choose body work. Right. So I speak to my therapist for five minutes or so, and then I lie on the table, and that's what we do. Yes, yes. yes. And I find that I find that um, that very useful because it, uh, it 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 just plugs me into an altered state, and all sorts of stuff can come out of that. Mm. Whether it's visualizations or you know particular, sometimes it's a line from a song that just comes and goes round and round my head, and then I go away and think about what that why that's come to me and why it's important. Mm. Mm. Um, but I'm afraid I wouldn't be any good at, uh, at dream therapy because I don't remember what I dream. This was the all. other question yeah. I asked: What happens in your dreams? <laughs> no um, idea. You've no idea. My, my, so I, I, I'm not convinced that I, I, I do dream because I think what I do is I set my I set my subconscious mind um, questions, puzzles mm. to solve in terms of the book that I'm writing. Mm. So I go to bed thinking about what the next scene is going to be, how am I going to make this transition, what are they going to say to each other. And while I'm asleep, um, I, is it my subconscious or my unconscious at that point? I think it's your unconscious. Okay, well, whatever it is, I'm, I'm unconscious anyway. Um, <laughs> but um, nine times out of ten in, in the morning when I get in the shower, the answer is there. So, mm. yeah, I think this is great. I, I get paid for being asleep. It's, it's <laughs> well, thank you very much. Well, thank you. <laughs> <laughs>